0: Hello, welcome to episode three of the Musical Memoirs podcast, a series of interviews with people who I find interesting and inspiring. This episode, I speak with Quinton Clover, who certainly fits this criteria. He runs Canalan, an organisation that facilitates humanitarian projects in developing countries around the world. I met Quinton a few years ago in Ibiza through mutual friends and was fascinated when he told me what he did. Quinton tells me about how he started Canalan nine years ago in Thailand, when he helped raise a quarter of a million pounds to help 300 trafficked Burmese children, and how the organization has since helped over 100,000 people, mainly kids, through various projects around the world. He tells me about their Girls Empowerment Project in Nepal, as well as education projects and the building of schools and safe houses in rural communities in Asia and Africa. We discuss how he finds new projects how they're funded, how they navigate problems with local officials, and how Canalan operate differently to a charity. As with the other episodes, we also play five tracks that Quinton has picked, and he tells me why each one means something to him. I hope you enjoy. I'm here with Quinton Clover, who runs the organisation Canalan. How's it
1: going? Yeah, good, thanks, Jamie. Good to uh, Good to see you again.
0: Yeah, it's been a while, isn't it? It's um I think it was there about five years ago, something like that.
1: Yeah, I think so, maybe even a bit longer.
0: How's things going with the uh, with the organization?
1: Yeah, really good actually. Um it's been throughout COVID, it's actually been super busy. Uh yeah. my, my busiest period yet, which is which I wasn't expecting. Um, but there's been there's been a lot of the problems that we deal with have been compounded by COVID and lockdown. Um so yeah, I've really had my work cut out the last sort of eighteen
0: months. Oh wow! Because um, it was it was in Ibiza when uh, when we were both there last, which five five or so years ago. I remember uh, we were at a night at Dalias, I think. I think it was like yeah. Nightmares and Waxes night, and, um, and and we knew each other a little bit, didn't we? We'd sort of I think we were just chatting, like, "What do you actually do?" I, I didn't even know what, what you actually did, and uh, and I, you just told me the story about this, and I was, "Wow, this is." This is amazing! It really, uh, really, really inspiring. And so, when I when I came up with the idea for the podcast, um, you were you were definitely up there on the on the list of people to speak to. So, how did it all come about? Because you you are English, aren't you? You you know you're originally. Um, are you from Norfolk?
1: Is that right? Yeah, born in London and then pretty much brought up in Norwich in Norfolk. Um, but I left there when I was about sixteen, um, and I started Camelan. Uh, about nine years ago. Okay. Um, and basically o- over the last sort of eight years, um, we've taken hun- over a hundred thousand people out of really sort of dire and often desperate situations around the world, particularly in Asia, um, with, a, with a focus on uh, girls empowerment in Nepal and the safe rehabilitation of girls who have been rescued from or uh, escaped from the sex trade primarily in the Philippines. Um, and also the advancement of education in, in deeply underprivileged areas throughout throughout all of asia and uh, tanzania and to uh, some, some work in south america as well
0: oh wow how did it come about to start with
1: like how did what were you doing
0: beforehand to, to come into this
1: so it was um i was actually living in um, in Thailand, in Phuket the island of Phuket um and i was working for a web marketing company um, and the, a long story short is that um, I met with some some women that were looking after 300 Burmese migrant children who had been trafficked in from Burma and were living in a shanty town uh, near the fishing port in Phuket. They'd been brought over by agents who effectively promised them a better life if they give them all their savings and then not will ship them across to their parents. It turned out when they got there they were basically prisoners or Slaves, really, and the parents were forced to work on fishing boats for sort of two or three weeks at a time in really, really crappy conditions. Uh, and the kids were left in the shanty town. And it transpired that the agents then gave that information to child traffickers, and they would then go to the shanty town when the parents were away and steal the children to sell them, sell them into the sex trade um, in the Philippines. So these women were looking after these kids and spending their time there. Um, and I just said because I was working for a web marketing firm, like why don't I try and like build you guys a website and raise you some money to help you in your cause? Um, and again, long story short, I got really heavily involved in it, and it transpired that they needed a safe house for these for these kids. Um, and I organised a fundraiser, which is me and six mates. We, we paddleboarded the whole way around Phuket. It took us four days, and we camped on all these beaches and stuff. Oh wow. Raised about ten grand, and then I took the ten grand to the to the to the women, and, and uh, they had zero plans. They had no idea how to build anything, and didn't they didn't really know what's next. They were just looking after the kids on a day to day basis. So I decided to, because I had the sponsors' money by this point, and I had to do something. So I decided to take over the project and or start a project. And long and short of it is, I like, I spent a year fundraising, which was just brutal. I was like cold calling banks and speaking at events and all this stuff, which I'm not used to. Uh, I quit my job to do that and just did web design in the evening to pay the rent. And after a year I had enough money to break ground and hire an architect and engineer and it took me two years but basically I I, I built a school for, for three school and a safe house and dentist and, and doctor's office for 300 traffic Burmese kids and it cost I managed to raise a quarter of a million quid to do that uh, and I opened it on December 2013 and that day somebody came who had been reading about it in the newspaper and invited me um, up to lunch with them. And and basically they said, we've been watching you, uh, we like what you do, Uh, we don't really trust charities. Um, Can you do this for us all over the world? Can you achieve this project management and and do it for us, we've got the money and we're gonna pay you to do it. So yeah, it's it's a bit of a longer story than that, but that's kind of as as short as I can make it. Um, But yeah, that that became client one in late 2013 and it's just grown from there.
0: No way. So it basically was something that you'd created yourself. And then through that, you managed to get backing and have have carried on since then.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Um, And I've always been very clear that it's not a charity. Um, It is a business, so to speak. I'm basically sort of self-employed. But I I make money, um, which I think is and I'm very, very clear about the money I make. And it's completely separate from the money that goes to the project. So my client, for instance, will pay me a retainer from their pocket. And then they leverage that to their network. So they can hold a big party at their office or their, their, the corporate side of their, um, their, their business, whatever, can donate money directly to the projects because they've already covered my retainer. So whenever anybody donates any money to anything that I do, 100% of it gets to the projects. There's just no gray area. Um, there's no office rental, there's nothing like that. So it just keeps it very transparent for people um, to, help, to help others around the world with, Zero religion, zero politics, um, no cuddly toys in the post, anything like that. It's just it's just direct giving, um, and
0: I facilitate that. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah, because I, I was having a read on the website, and it said, um, but basically was, was was saying that that um, that everything goes towards there, and and because you haven't got many overheads or anything like that, it's it's a lot easier than than charities and things
1: that I guess have a lot of overheads don't they they do yeah and like, i'm not going to slander the whole like sector because they do they do obviously doing incredible work but uh, a lot of big charities who i've um encountered in the field over the years it's it's crazy what their day-to-day expenses might be so just if you put 100 grand into a big charity it's quite likely 60 percent will go on administrative costs so 40 percent might get it. That, that's a good charity and then you meet the guys in the field. And I met a couple of guys from a big charity, which I wrote name. I met them in Burma. I had to meet them for lunch one day. We were talking about project collaboration.
0: And I cycled
1: there on a push bike from my hostel, which cost like a dollar. And the hostel cost a dollar, and the bike cost less than a dollar. And these guys turned up, these two guys turned up, both in their own blacked out SUV, fully branded up in charity, stickers and stuff like that. And an SUV in Burma is like five times the price it would be in, in the States. So like crazy money. And then I was chatting with them, and they were only allowed to stay in a hotel that exceeded $350 a night. Otherwise, it negates their insurance policy. buy back to these crazy big hotels in the big city. And, and if you think about the thousands and thousands of staff they have all doing that, it's, it's insane the amount of money that just, just hemorrhage cash all the time. And they're targeted to get rid of this money so that they can raise more money from the government next year. If they don't spend it all, they're not going to get it again. Um, and it's just completely the opposite to the way that I, I operate. Um, which is quite attractive, I think, to, to people that want to help help people around the world. Yeah, that, that, that makes sense, doesn't it? <laughs> how,
0: did, uh, how did the name come about, Canalan?
1: Uh, Am I saying that right? You are saying it right? And I never really knew I'd stick with it because I was doing this work uh, before I sort of made it into a business. So I, I was in, it's in Peru, actually, and I was working in the mid-Andean, mid-altitude Andean uh, communities. We were looking at doing some projects there and I was hanging out with these, this family and the young girl in the family was asking what my business was called or what char- she thought it was a charity like what my charity was called and I said actually I don't have a name I haven't even thought about that because I just went straight into working and um, she said uh, Canalan and Canalan basically in, a, in the indigenous land of Quechua in South America in a dialect it basically means right now so we just came up with this thing saying our slogan would be giving right now so giving in the right way now and um and she said, yeah, definitely call it Cannelan. And then I thought, okay, cool. And I used it as like a, I don't know what you'd say, like a, a working title. Like I didn't I've never really thought I'd call my business it. And it just stuck and I never changed it. So it's oh, fair enough. Sounds a bit like a gas company, but <laughs> at least it's different. It.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think though, once you especially once you've seen it um written yeah. down, it's um it's pretty memorable.
1: Yeah, exactly. I hope so.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. Um well, b- before we get into what different projects you've been doing and, and what you've got coming up and what, what what you've done in the past, um should we should we start with the first track? Yeah, definitely. The, the um the the classic track that you couldn't live without.
1: Okay, so I think this one's probably a bit cliche because I'm sure lots of people say it, but it's give me shelter by the Rolling Stones. Oh, amazing. Yeah, and it was I I I was really fortunate enough to be in, in, I got invited by a friend to the Rio Carnival uh, maybe 10 years, more than 10 years ago. And it was, the, I was there for a month and the Rolling Stones were closing the carnival on the last day. And it was the biggest outdoor concert ever. Um, and it was a free concert. So there was like 2.5 million people on Copacabana beach. It was just one of the best nights of my life. And this, this track obviously played and everyone went wild. Um, and I've always sort of listened to it since that
0: makes sense that's a pretty cool memory isn't it i've heard that they did that gig but to have actually been there that would have been pretty amazing yeah it was a good night So, how do you find projects?
1: Um, so, it's actually quite, I, I do get asked this quite often. Um, and the, the actual answer is there, there are a shitload of projects around the world that need help. I mean, it's, 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 it's the, the, more, the more I travel, the more I learn, the more you see that needs help. And it's actually my job is to establish relationships with people that are already doing good work on the ground. That um, are trusted individuals who, who's basically whose heart is in the work that they're doing, but they lack any kind of funding or um, structure for growth. So, um, the, the vast majority of the projects that I've built, I build, I mean, as an example, we have um, a village in the Philippines. It's called it's a children's village in the Philippines for girls who have escaped or been rescued from the sex trade, and it's. Uh, it's a really beautiful little village and the girls like paint murals on the walls for the other girls, new arrivals and things like that. And they have loads of pets and flowers. They all have very horrible lives. And it's just like a, a community where they can sort of recover and grow and, and get the psychological help that they need. Um, and we built uh, that there was a, a guy working there on the garbage dump where that most of these girls come from. And he was a guy from Switzerland and he devoted his entire life to helping these girls. And he'd been there for maybe 15 years, but, didn't have the funding to, to move it forward. So he was visiting them in the slums and visiting them in various places, which weren't safe. Um, and I met him and then that's the sort of type of thing I do. You meet someone that's already doing something like that and you kind of empower them or, or help them financially to move on to the next steps. So we, we step them and build a village, which he now runs with a bunch of people and all the girls and a safe accommodation. And I wouldn't have been able to do that without meeting him. And How you know,
0: did you meet him?
1: I was, um, it was just after um, the typhoon, hurricane, I one's got that wrong, had, met, had hit Tacloban uh, nine years, eight, eight years, seven years ago, something. seven years ago, and we were rebuilding a school in Tacloban, and then I heard about this guy, actually, he he lives in a place called Cagayan de Oro in the Philippines, such a big city with a big garbage dump in it, 17 hectare garbage dump, uh, where, where all the girls come from. And so I went over to just to, to chat with him and I flew over there and, and turned up and I spent a couple of days there with him. And he'd learnt the, the language, he was fluent in the language and he lived on the slums with the girls for years and and, and the families, not just the girls. Um, and he became a really integral part of the community, helping wherever he could. and. Uh, he, he's, a, he's a really amazing guy, um, and we just we just hit it off, and just we figured out what we could do together and what the next steps would be, and, and that's when we we stepped in and, and, and built the village, and we've gone on to build a big uh, lots of other things in the area to help help the girls.
0: And uh, do you still have a hand in in the running?
1: Yeah, we do. We have a lot. We have a lot of. Um, we I try not to overstep the mark because I, we we I built um, now over 35 big projects and it's all all of those projects are are partnering with an individual like this guy in the philippines and they really know what they're doing and they and and it's then i take the lead from them 99 percent of the time um because they've been doing it for so long already and it's and i'm really anti big or western organizations or whatever it may be charities heavy going in with a heavy foot and saying this is what you need i, I can I listen from the community and, and and we figure out what's actually necessary because as i mentioned before with these charities that are targeted to spend money they will just puke projects all over a country without any thought they will literally they'll just we have to spend this much so you need a school you need this you need this and you visit it again the next year and it will be a pub like it's it's just not the, there's not as much they don't listen to the communities as much as they should in, in my opinion in, in a lot of cases so yeah i do have a hand in it and, and i know every, nearly every girl and boy in all of all of our projects and we like, I mean, monitor their progress and things like that and we and i visit i'm pre-covid I, I would be at all the projects at least once or twice um a year so i'd be in Asia, and in africa and, and south america for about six six months of the year normally
0: oh wow so it's 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 definitely keeping you busy then.
2: Yeah, yeah,
1: <laughs> but I, I love it. I can't imagine doing anything else now. Um, but it's 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 definitely really not without the downsides because you see some really really dark stuff and the way that humans treat their children. And it's the more good you do, the more horrors you see. Um, so I'm very happy to do it, but it would be it would be fantastic if if no one had to do it. Yeah, that makes sense, doesn't it?
0: How is it funded then?
1: Um, So it's funded by um, my clients, essentially. Um, And they have a budget that they wish to spend every year. And then I research the projects, run due diligence on projects, and then I propose them to my clients, say, once once or twice a year, a list of projects which I'm confident in and are ready to go with um, and are going to lead them in a a fully self-sustaining manner. And then my clients will basically approve them or not approve them um and very often they everything approved um and then the funding comes directly from them from their accountant to the project account that we set up on the ground so the money never ever comes by me and I, I make a very clear point of that i don't ever want to touch money that's for the projects um so it's just it's a very clear direct transaction that's sort of in line with the with the project timeline and the, and the budgetary release dates um so yeah it's actually really simple um compared to a lot of other ways of doing things that makes sense and, and good to keep yourself out of it i mean the thing is about this working in this sector i mean i have been fortunate i've never i haven't had any problems but if you if you make the slightest mistake in a charity sector it's you are it's well people are always looking for faults essentially like well how can he do this like how can he be doing all this good work like where's the catch and then you look at say bankers who are completely screwing people over on a day-to-day basis and no one says anything. So it's, yeah. it's way harder when they look at the sector. So you've got to be very, very careful because obviously it's all about trust and reputation. Um, and it's and, and so because of that, I just don't want any gray areas. So I don't want the money coming by me or, or, or anything like that, just to keep it. People can literally look at the accounts whenever they want to. And yeah, I just, just trying to keep it simple and transparent.
0: So going back to the music, so yeah. the last track that made a real impact on you,
1: yeah. Um, so the last track that made a real impact on me is um, was kind of like um, a, a while ago. I, I actually heard it the first time I think uh, at Cafe Nambo in Ibiza, and it, and it was cool. And I think like I don't know if you know um, lovely Laura, the saxophonist. She, yeah, she was, yeah. Um, And its I never can say it right, but it's Dubel. And, um, but I actually, I'd forgotten about it and it's kind of cheesy, but I was at a festival about a month ago and it was the first festival that we'd been at in like two years and I hadn't seen my mates in two years. And it was just like, it was really cool for everyone to be there and it was hammering it down with rain and really muddy, Uh, but this song came on and there was a different saxophonist there. And uh, everyone just was just such a cool, happy moment in the rain, and everyone was having such a good time. Um, and that was, that was the last time I heard it again. It was about, about a month ago. But it just made me realise how much we have missed out on the last two years of like being together with mates and parties and, and, and I don't know, like Ibiza things like that. So yeah, that that kind of made an impact on me when I heard it again uh, last month.
0: Oh, brilliant! Yeah, funny enough, when when you said the name, it's um, the only reason I know it is from from lovely Laura playing it. In, in, in a visa.
1: Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't I don't know her, but I just I just that was the first time i I'd, I'd seen it, I think.
0: What projects have you got going on that you particularly would like to sort of talk about?
1: Um, So we've got about four construction projects running at the moment, Um, but what often gets overlooked is what's called a soft programme in these countries. And that's something that's got no construction whatsoever involved in it. Um, And that is a a 10 year girls empowerment programme that we're running in rural Nepal. We're in our fourth year of it now, and we've reached uh, well over 10,000 young women. And the, the, the women, in, and especially the girls in rural Nepal, get, get a really tough time. Um, often when it's their monthly period, they're forced to stay in a hut with the animals uh, in, in the end of the garden. There's no human contact. They're only allowed water to drink um, and they're in absolute disgrace. And they've got no idea. I mean, they, they've, they've just reached adolescence, which is scary enough already. Confusing enough, and they don't know what's happening to their bodies. No one tells them what's happening to their bodies, but they're just forced to stay in the hut until their period's over. And this continues uh, every month. Um, So they miss school, they're deeply, um, they, they don't understand what's happening, so they're very, very confused. And then on the other side of things, girls are deeply suppressed in Nepal, in rural Nepal, and there's they're just not expected to have an education or to go to work after an education and child marriage although illegal is hugely prevalent and girls as young as 11 years old um, are forced into into child marriage um with people a great deal older than them in their sort of 40s um so we started this girls empowerment program we started it very small four years ago um working with a couple of girls who were uh, about 18 girls to start with um, and all the men and the fathers were very, very anti this project, um, so we had to sort of demonstrate, although I hate it, it always comes down to money, but we had to bene- demonstrate a fiscal or financial benefit to this programme, so that basically the girls receiving an education with us, or vocational training with us, are actually going to benefit their family financially in the long haul. And everyone was super pissy about it the guys didn't want it to happen but it, it actually started to really work and it, and it and it really grew really quickly and now we have like huge self-defense programs throughout the poor where these girls who would not talk to a man four years ago and certainly not to someone like someone like me visiting and they're they're they're, they're They've taken on, one girl has now received sponsorship from California to get her black belt in kickboxing. And the other girls are uh, taking self-defense out into other villages and, and teaching other young women. So self-defense is one aspect of it. Um, but the sport obviously helps them mentally as well. And then we have big uh, training programs on the menstrual cycle. Um, and then we also have a national TV show that goes out once a week, which reaches a, lot, a great deal of people around the country. And the girls are now on that show, taking on politicians and demanding rights for women around the pool. Um, and everyone started to listen. The politicians are now making changes. The girls are now, we set up a scholarship program where these girls will now go to college and then university. Um, and they're, throughout lockdown, they're using the skills that they learned throughout our empowerment program to look after all the locals in their villages. They set up health posts for them and figured out ways to educate the villagers who couldn't read or write about COVID and about the risks of COVID. And they basically became the kind of champions of their village in, in, in educating everyone about COVID and keeping everybody safe. Um, and that reached the newspapers and everyone was talking about So it was it's really cool how it's grown. Um, so it started as one year, then I got funding for three years, now in our fourth year, I've got funding for the next three years. And ultimately it'll be 10 years. Um, this first year cycle was in an area called Nawa Parasi. Uh, where we reached about ten we we're now moving to another district and and we're now taking elements of it nationwide so we're now operating in every single muni- municipality of nepal uh, working with girls in, in deeply rural areas and, and and hard situations um to move them forward and what's culminated from that is that we're now building a, a really big um girls empowerment center in a central location but girls from all over the country will come in on buses or however they get there and they'll spend time there sort of in, in accommodation and they'll learn everything that we've been teaching the girls in our empowerment program but it will open it up to all of Nepal and for school trips and also as refuge for girls who are having a shitty time they can just turn up there and they'll be looked after no questions asked um, and it's just effectively a safe house for for all these young women
0: oh, that's amazing that's 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 not just a small project is it
1: (laughs) no it grew fast and uh and it's all down to the bravery of the girls because it's not an easy thing to do to to buck the trend or or what the sort of social stigma is or or social like way of life really and it's the 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 really cool thing is to speak to the mums of these girls because the mums grew up in a very strict environment with no rights and they are just yes, the, the girls are now teaching their mums how to read and write and, and the mums are just so proud of their daughters and as, as are the fathers now which is great um, so it has made a huge difference and the only reason I, I just wanted to talk about that is because stuff like that it's very easily overlooked when you're trying to raise funding because it's not it's very hard to make the proposal tangible so because you, you, you just say yeah, you know we're going to help girls in and people want, want to see a building go up and right and, yeah I was lucky enough to work for my clients for four years before that and they trusted me in my work and then I proposed this and they allowed me to try it for one year and it really paid off and, and, it has, and it's and it's progressed from there. But it's interesting, people's uh, concept about giving money, they just they want to see a building, which is quite it was fantastic. I mean, we did see people do amazing projects, but sometimes it overlooked what's actually happening on the ground. Yeah,
0: that makes sense. And, and who is it you work with? Like, who came up with the idea to start with? You said there were a couple of girls.
1: Yeah, so I work with an organisation on the ground, uh, I have a project manager as well in, in Nepal called Deepak, and um, we we were already building um, schools in, in very remote areas of Nepal, and, and fr- through that work, we started to learn more and more about how deeply suppressed young women were. So it, it actually came out of our work, we, I'd already been working in Nepal for, for four or five years, and. Um, the more we worked, the more I worked there. The more you could see that girls were not getting an equal footing in in, in the rural areas, uh, in terms of education or career prospects, or even just day to day life. I mean, effectively, when you get married in these areas, you're you're a slave to your husband. You can you're not supposed to do anything. You just stay at home and you, and you cook. Um, so we developed it together with and I developed it with the local communities with whom we we'd already worked, and I think the only reason they allowed us to take this sort of Risk or punt at this is because we'd already built projects in their communities that have served them pretty well, and they trusted us. Um, so it, it just developed out of our, of our previous experience in the country. That makes sense.
0: And you said that the fathers are coming around because you said to start with that they they were the issue, weren't they?
1: Yeah, For... the, and and the men, a lot of the men generally, because the police and the politicians are heavily weighted towards men. I mean, I don't think there was any female police, but but they. Um, because the girls are now serving the community and also some of the girls are making money, the, the dads are, are completely pro it and, and they, they love it. And, and the girls work very closely with police and they kind of brought the men in line a little bit because we set up reporting reviews and things like that. And they um, like confidential reporting structure and system. So they, they, they're kind of, yeah, holding the men to task a little bit, which is quite cool to see.
0: That's brilliant. <laughs> what a reversal in four years.
1: Yeah, it has been, and I hope it continues to grow. Like other other, as I say, we're taking it nationwide, and other, other communities want us to move into those areas.
0: Is it like a snowball effect? Because you kind of, I guess, you've you've got one one year of like to start with. You've got one year of girls, and then now you've kind of got four years of girls. That that then, I guess, they some of them will be able to then start running things and yeah. keeping things going.
1: Yeah, it's, I think it's, I think the word is, which I always, everyone always uses, is exponential. Um, they will, uh, the, the girls who were in our first year, they actually weren't, the, there's girls that have now been through four years of this, so we get like a fresh group every year, but there's girls that progress through four years, and they are now employed by us to work in the, uh, in these areas and take the programme to other areas. So it's not only just giving girls to their education and, and and help with day-to-day life, we're actually Figuring out ways that some of the girls can actually have jobs doing this and take their experience in when we're working in areas where we don't have that much previous interaction or experience it really helps us to be able to bring the girls in to speak to the community and speak to the other young women because i mean who am i like but they if they can see their peers from another region and how and what they're doing and playing football and all this stuff it's, it's a lot easier to talk to to the to communities like that, and um, and 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 they're the evidence really. They're the proof that the empowerment program is worthwhile.
0: Um, yeah, that makes sense, doesn't it?
1: Yeah. So it's, it's quite cool. So it's, it becomes bigger. It's going to. I, I hopefully it, it's it's going to work nationwide, and it will be again on the basis of the girls' courage and and their drive really.
0: That's that's pretty special, isn't it?
1: Yeah, I, I, I'm ha- very happy with it.
0: Yeah going back to the, the tracks that you've picked
1: yeah
0: a track that gives you goosebumps
1: It's this one uh i always used to listen to this i think when i was kind of like hungover and i <laughs> like it was all it's uh, i'm not sure i'm not sure why it's always just really resonated with me it's not exactly a dance track um but gregory allen Isakov. uh if i go i'm going this house
3: is a hole secret Got my change Behind the bed In a coffee can Throw my nickels in Just in case I have to leave And I will go If, you dare. if I go, I'm going to change the mind. My- So quiet, the talker, she so creaks and moans, she keeps me up And the photographs know I'm alive, they just laugh as they burn. i will go if you ask me to i will stay if you dare if i go Jay. Yeah. Yeah.
1: beautiful that track is isn't it yeah it's a good it's cool I really like it I mean it's pretty pretty mellow but um I listen to it every now and and again I really really like it
0: you could almost imagine the lead up to a sunset or something for that yeah
1: exactly yeah or just just
0: after a sunset when it's kind of building back up again yeah
1: it's different yeah I really like it it's uh it's quite some people hate it so I wasn't sure to put it on here but yeah I'm a fan
0: oh really no I really like that nice so um do you ever find issues with like local officials and governments in the countries that you that you go into
1: we do often we do often encounter difficulties um i won't speak too specifically but a, a lot of it is down to um local officials seeing that funding is available for a project and, and what could be their take like what can they make out of this so right yeah that, that's probably the, the, the first thing we have to navigate and then if you don't figure out ways to navigate that then your your plans get really jammed up at government level because everything's still although we work in, in countries which maybe aren't so developed there's still systems in place where you have to get building clearance and, and planning permission and all this kind of thing so you need people you need the government on your side for things like this so that's the hardest thing is, is probably the red tape and people wanting funding the the other sort people basically want to be bribes but the other issue that we face is when the governments are anti what we're trying to do or the or the demographic that we're trying to help so that could be um, a migrant community in thailand for instance has come from burma and the thai government see you spending money on a migrant community they want the money spent on thai charities so you have to work way around that and employ thai laborers and thai staff to help the homeless community and every every time it's different and that in the philippines one of the biggest problems that we face is the the country's um attitude and laws towards drugs so i'm not sure if you, if you know about this but in, in the philippines effectively at certain points you're allowed to shoot a drug addict on site like it is because they it's you and you would not be charged quite for, for doing that it's, it's super hard really it's i didn't yeah. know that no it's crazy i'm not sure exactly what it's like now but it's it's, it's been like that in, in the recent past and um a lot of the people with whom we work in the philippines as i said grew up on um on garbage dumps and that from babies that their parents struggle to feed them and um, so there's a synthetic drug that they make which is um made out of gasoline and various different other uh, solvents and things. And what it does is it suppresses their children's appetite. So they're not hungry. Uh, They then become addicted to this. And over time that, that uh, moves on to, to different drugs and then whatever, but it's really not these children's fault. And it's, and they've been given this since they were babies. So they're, they're addicted from day one or from very young age. And, um, it's very hard to help that demographic because drugs are illegal. So you, you have to find ways around that and ways of sort of wrapping up the project to look a slightly different way, if that makes sense. I mean it's all it's all legal, it's all legit what, what we do, but it's 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 difficult to navigate some rules like that because they're just so set in stone. But it's a community that most needs help. Um, so stuff like that's quite quite complicated and, and um, it can be difficult.
0: Yeah, I could imagine so. <laughs> so leading on to on to the fourth track a, yep. a track a track that stops you in your tracks
1: so this is um a, a, it's called it's rage valley by knife party and uh i just a friend played it to me years ago and uh i just really like the drop in it and then it kind of just goes off into like this weird miami vice 80s star bit before <laughs> I just i just thought it was a really interesting track when i first heard it and it's got it's definitely got some punch
0: Oh wow! Yeah, that's um, that's got some energy in it.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's a good one to wake you up.
0: <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure I'd, I'd want to play it much myself, but I can see I can see how that might have stopped you in your tracks.
1: <laughs> yeah, it certainly did.
0: <laughs> Amazing. So, what future projects have you got coming up then?
1: Um, right now, I am working on um, three projects in northern Cambodia and they are uh, it's three school projects and built within a uh, or built within close proximity of two really important wildlife conservation areas and um, this, there's actually schools in existence there already but they're really broken down old sheds they're not safe and they're they're just not right for, for school so we're building three schools almost at once um, and they're going to be using eco-friendly techniques Uh, we're going to have bamboo tiles and grass roofs and basically trying to source everything as much as we can locally in an environmentally friendly way Um, and then we're partnering up with the conservation areas who are going to be working in the communities and in the school to uh, firstly educate the kids on protecting their environment um, and the wildlife around them but also figuring out ways to um, help the community work in the conservation areas and develop um develop jobs for the for the community and the children in future so it's quite i'm really passionate about this one i'm really i'm really looking forward to it because often in, in the areas that i work unfortunately it's hard to put uh, sort of eco-friendly projects ahead i mean it's, it's hard to make them eco-friendly at times because we it, it's just not the Although it's very important, it, it's the safety of the children is the first thing we have to deal with. And, it, and it's as quickly as possible sometimes we have to build something and, and often it won't be it, it will have an environmental footprint that perhaps I'm not happy with. I mean it's not huge, but it would be it would be cool for that not to be a thing. So I'm working towards that at the moment, trying to make our projects as green as possible. Um, and this will be the first time it's almost completely neutral, which is which is great, but plus it's it's gonna help the uh, conservation area in years and years to come and then educate the kids on what's important about protecting that area. So yeah, I'm really excited about that project and I hope it's the start of a lot more projects with that um, sort of intertwined into the education.
0: That makes sense. that's brilliant. And how did this one come about then?
1: Um, So I I work with um, an architect uh, who's based in Cambodia um, and uh, an organization called Building Trust International. And they are so. Basically, since COVID hit, um, I haven't been on the ground, so I, I'm very reliant on people I work with to to help to help me. And he he actually proposed these projects to me, and he he's really passionate about it. Um, so it, it was through and, and I've worked in Cambodia in, in the past with him and on other projects, and, and he brought these projects to my, my attention. Um, and uh, it's, it, it's 98% signed off. I'm just waiting on a few things. Um, but hopefully we'll break ground by December on, on the first one. Amazing. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. And, and they're in a, in a really cool style, the buildings there. Um, they're a circular building um, with a sort of wavy grass roof, and it's, it's, it's actually in line with how buildings used to be made in the area. And so it's kind of bringing it back to its roots a little bit and some traditional building methods, but with a with a much more modern standard uh, applied to it.
0: Yeah, well, that makes sense. That sounds like a great project.
1: Yeah, I can't wait. So, so that we've got that coming up, and then um, we are just about to finish a nursery uh, for kids that are about three years old uh, on the in mysot in Thailand, which is on the Burmese border. So these are Burmese migrant children, um, and it's, that's a really nice design. It's, we've got an integrated climbing frame so the outside of the school the outside of the nursery is one giant climbing frame encapsulating the nursery with slides and swings and things so it's it's, it's super fun and bright building and often in of, often fun and brightness gets neglected in charitable projects because it's just all about functionality and I try my best to think about the kids day to day lives and what they actually care about and they don't really give a shit about the building they want to have fun so I want to try and put as much um, entertainment and day-to-day fun for for the kids in the projects that we build
0: yeah, that makes perfect sense doesn't it after all they're, they're kids aren't they so
1: exactly yeah and, and they don't know about the money they don't really know about i mean especially these young kids i mean they don't really know what, what, what's happening with the building and stuff but what they do know is they like fun and, and i think fun is a very important factor in, in people's lives and and is normally last on the list when people decide to fund a charitable project is safe education first and academics and possibly religion and things like this and, that, and i just try and prioritize fun a bit more
0: yeah that makes perfect sense i mean you just need to look at kids in, anywhere in the world that you know have ba- basic needs met and everything and and that's what they want to do is just have fun isn't it it's an important part of being well not just human like you just you look at lambs in the field and yeah are like skipping around and everything it's it's got to be yeah, an important part yeah. isn't it
1: yeah to- totally agree
0: so you basically run all this yourself
1: uh yeah so i i run the organization um and everybody else who i work with is on the ground in these countries um and they work they've been work, m- most of the guys have been working with me for almost since the beginning. Um, but in order to keep it, the operation as simple as it is, I don't actually have anybody on payroll. So the, the way it works is every member of staff that works for me or anyone, only laborers or anything like that, they are included in the project budget. So let's say for instance, the project is 50 grand, my project manager will be making two grand of that and the engineer, the other. So everything's factored into the budget. Um, but because we've had quite a high volume of projects over the years, um, nearly all the, the staff that I work with in project management level have had, con- have had a solid job since the beginning because there's always new stuff coming along um, and new projects. And that's actually how I get projects finished on time. Or well, one of the ways that projects finished on time in these countries is that, yeah, I, I just talked to the staff and very clear that if, 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 you, if we get this finished on budget and on time, there's going to be another project ahead that you guys are going to be top of the list to work for. And if if you go over the budget, um, that's actually something that you needs to be sorted out on the ground. Um, because I, I make a very clear point of never ever going back to my clients and asking for more money on a project. So it, it basically means that I've never ever gone over budget on a project in, in nine years. That's um, pretty impressive. <laughs> yeah, and, and the way I do that is, is, is incentivizing the teams we work with to um, well, guaranteeing them future work if if, if everything goes okay, because it's, it's, it can be in these projects. On if you do a one-off project, that um, if the guys and understandably so, that the guys are concerned about what they're going to do when the project completes. So they they will stretch out the project and they'll 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 go months and months and months long just so they can have the money to feed their families, which is completely understandable. But I try and work around that. Um, by by guaranteeing work instead um, upon successful completions. Yeah, that makes sense. Are
0: you, like, because it's just yourself and you're obviously still involved with lots of projects that have been going on for years, is there, like, a critical mass? Is there, like, a maximum you think that you can handle?
1: Yeah, I can do both. But I think that it would be more about a critical mass that I could handle each year, like, starting off so it's like building a project or starting a program because they are largely self-sufficient after we step away Um, and my project managers in the countries are always keeping an eye on them um, and making and reporting back from them i think at some point obviously if 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 it does grow then I i will need to bring on more people but i would i would try to structure it in a way that it creates better jobs for people on the ground rather than employing someone at this end try and move the guys on the ground up a notch in terms of jobs and things like that yeah that makes sense
0: and with the funding do you you just work with specific people or because you said it's not a charity so normal people can't donate or something like that
1: yeah so it's um it's something i'm looking at doing in the future is allowing is setting up something for people to to donate donate but i'm just at the moment i don't want to do it because I i want to keep it clear that i'm not a charity. Um, and then, but what what is possible? So yes, sorry, I do work with specific clients, and they fund everything. But um, one of my clients is a charity. If that makes sense, so I built them a charity, set them up as a charity, um, so that they can raise money from their friends for my work. Um, and again, they already pay me a retainer outside of that charitable structure. So hundred percent of what goes into that charity goes to the project and all the projects they do are my projects. Um, so when someone does want to donate or, or has a little bit of money, or they want to do a fundraiser or something like that, then I always ask them to donate to that charity. Um, right. And they can benefit from knowing that all that money is going to go to our projects. And, it, and, and, and by giving to a charity, you can claim gift aid and things, things like that.
0: Um, and where, where is that one based?
1: That's based in London. It's called, it's called Indigo Children's Fund. It's my client, but it, I run the website and I, I, I build all the projects that are on there. It's just a way, it's just a simpler way for them to be able to raise money from their from their communities. And, and also, it's a good way, it's a great place for me to direct people to to donate money. And um, I don't know if you know uh, jo- Johnny Lee, um, who does- uh, DJ, last night DJ segment, my life. Yeah, so he, he very generously raises money for us throughout, through his projects. Uh, the, there was a the big, uh was it last, uh, earlier in this year that sort of carl cox playing lots of individual djs of thousands around the world doing your own fundraising event playing a set um and uh he donates to indigo children's fund because he needs to, he gives the money to a charity and then that and then i use that money on, on the projects um so in short yeah I, I i really only work for a couple of a couple of clients and i don't take donations myself
0: and you and yourself you where, where are you based did, did yeah. you tell me you're in you're in Switzerland these days? I mean yeah, at exactly. the moment you're actually in Canada, aren't you? But
1: yeah, it's been a weird year because normally obviously I'll be travelling a lot more, but I, I um I got locked down in Switzerland, way up in the mountains, uh in a car-free town, which was which was really great, really, for lockdown. I was very fortunate. And you know, we were just hiking and snowboarding and, and stuff, which was which was really cool. Very lucky. Um I had the reason I was there, I have one of my clients is based in Geneva um and i was spending some time there and then we got locked down there since lockdown's ended i've had to do quite a lot of travel i'm in canada now um which is just a personal visit. To, uh, but i'm going to new york on tuesday which is where i'm trying to uh basically trying to pitch to um get another organization involved in what i do um and try and grow it a little bit so uh, And then after that, I'm I'll probably be back in Switzerland. But I'm I'm kind of always bouncing around a little bit. Um, And I think as soon as things open up, then I'm going to be in Asia for for most of the year uh, after I leave for there.
0: Okay. So going on to your the the last track, a uh, a guilty pleasure.
1: Okay. So this one is um, was was actually originally by the Foo Fighters, and it it came out during lockdown. And uh, again, it's a bit cheesy, but Whenever I'm, like, away on a project and I feel like humanity is just horrible and you see some of the, the shit that they're doing, um, I really like this because it's really – it's I don't know, because it it's a bunch of musicians getting together and really trying to just sort of cheer people up and make them happy, and they do such good work. Um, and uh, it's good to know that there's kind of good – support out there, if that makes sense. I'll, I'll often listen to it when I'm out on projects and it makes me realise that the world is not full of dicks. <laughs> <laughs>
0: so which, which version is it?
1: Oh, sorry. So it's actually Live Lounge All-Stars um, and Times Like These.
0: had not heard that version before.
1: Yeah, so they brought out. It, so it's if you watch the video, it's quite cool because you can see all the different musicians and, and artists in the video. But there's heaps and heaps of them, and I think they've Grohl organised the whole thing. Um, but yeah, I just find it quite. up I mean, it is cheesy, but it's kind of uplifting. I
0: mean, that's the point of a guilty pleasure, isn't it? But is exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I, I actually really, I really do like the original song, and and the lyrics yeah. are pretty cool, aren't they?
1: Yeah, they are. Yeah, yeah. I, I've always liked the original song actually as well. Um, yeah, it's definitely a guilty pleasure.
0: You touched on it before, and you were saying that you know it, it can get quite hard when you're in projects and you're seeing some pretty dark stuff. Um, how how do you deal with that yourself? If you don't mind me asking,
1: what's really helped me is having a balance in life. So there are people that do a far far better job, not a, a very different job to what I do, and they are um real martyrs and they're really committed like for instance the guy I mentioned in the Philippines he's devoted his life to living on that garbage dump and helping all these people um which has its it's obviously an incredibly challenging lifestyle um but there's limitations there's also limitations he finds it hard to raise money because he's all, always there and I'm very much in the middle fit. so I'm always trying to raise money and, and and speak on a corporate level to people on this side um and then I'm over there sort of it's like half and half, so I'm I'm over there a lot, and I see all the, I see everything, and and it's super depressing. But I've always had a really lucky balance where I'll be, in, like, as, when I lived in Ibiza, it would be I, I land in Ibiza, and it kind of all just fades away, all the all the shit that I've seen. And it's the same. I've tried to maintain that balance over the years to keep to keep myself sane, but also to keep myself um, sort of in tune with the corporate sector. With whom I have to talk and understand what they want to hear and they want directness and they just want good solid pitches which a lot of the guys on the ground who I work with that is where they struggle is it's it's talking to people in London to raise money because the guys on the ground are so passionate and and ingrained in what they do which is which is fantastic they find it hard to believe why anyone wouldn't help them and then it doesn't work very well like the, the the guilt thing doesn't work sort of thing it's, it's I just find it's I'm in a very unique position in the middle um and I think as you say I think I as the question was I think that's what keeps me sane, is having the balance.
0: Yeah, being the the facilitator, the, the man in the middle,
1: exactly. with, in, with a foot in both worlds. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I get huge credit to the guys that are on the ground all the time. I'm not sure that I can do it. Uh, I don't think I'm talent- talented enough to do it. I just happen to have found a certain niche that I'm relatively good at, at, at communicating and raising money and good at establishing relationships on the ground. Everyone else does the hard stuff. The guys make the money and the guys on the ground do the... <laughs>
0: i can't say it sounds like you've got an easy life <laughs> yeah. but it sounds super interesting anyway
1: yeah thanks mate um, and
0: and and again like from that conversation we had at last alias and, and for what you've just been telling me now super inspiring really okay
1: i take my hat off to you <laughs> thanks, mate. I'm, I'm super happy to do it and uh hopefully i will be doing it for the next 40 years
0: yeah I hope so so if people want to find out more yeah what what's the best place for them to go
1: uh so um canalan.com so it's k-a-n-a-l-l-a-n.com and that's where you can see all the projects and i'm actually just launching a new um program which is like a, a canalan partnership program so what it is, is instead of having clients that donate huge amounts to projects, I want to open up my work to a much larger audience of people that might want to support at lower levels of funding. So I'm, I'm looking at partnering with corporations who want to give um, £300 a month to be a Canalan official partner. And then as part of that, you'll be supporting every single project that we do. And then every month uh, they log into their partnership area and in there we'll have pre-made social media content uh branded up in canaland partnership watermarks and things of, of the most significant projects that we've been working on that month and then they can say to their community we're a proud canaland partner and this is the work that they're doing um, so i'm just trying to that's i'm launching that next week actually um and again that's on the website But i just like and so many people always ask how can they help and the, the client level is is quite high in terms of funding what it provides and i I want to give other organizations a way of helping directly without necessarily becoming a client
0: so what sort of people or what sort of organizations
1: are you aiming that at? anybody that potentially has looked at giving to charity in the past or has given to charity in the past and they don't really see the results so doing it this way if you're a corporation you to only give 300 pounds a month is not a great deal but Utilise our content and be a part of the overall objectives of, of what we do, um, which really does look good for the business. But also, it makes you a part of something. And if you were just to give three hundred pounds a month to a big charity, you really wouldn't know where that money is going, and you would get you possibly get a newsletter and some pens in the post, which cost money and things like that. But you that three hundred is a complete drop in the ocean. This, you know exactly where it's going, and you're helping. That individual project or that individual project, um, and then you can feed that back into using your social media and your PR, and and hopefully your staff are proud of it, and it's, you're you're actually a real part of something, and you know why you're giving the money. Right, so yeah. Wow.
0: And if anybody wants to get involved with that, um, there's there's a contact on like form on the on the
1: website. Yeah, there's a contact form on the website, and for now it would be great if people just drop me a message if they're interested, because we're actually officially like launching the, the partner program page and, and, and sort of uh, membership system uh, early, early next week um, so that will be on there then
0: oh brilliant um the indigo, indigo children, children
1: Fund. um that's yeah it's a uk registered charity any money that gets put into that 100 percent it, it, will go on our project there, there's just there's nothing else there's no admin nothing so that that's just indigo children's fund.com um, and on there, yeah, you, can see, you can see all the projects um, as they develop, and you can see all our past projects on there. Um, and, uh, yeah, if, if anyone would like to get involved and, and, and doesn't want to become a client or anything like that, then if it's £1 or £10 or £100, it, it, it all really helps.
0: Amazing. Oh, great. Oh, well, thanks for this, mate. It's yeah, it been really good to chat to you again, and, and, and amazing to hear how much it's grown since, since I saw you five or six years ago.
1: Yeah, it's really good to chat, mate. Hopefully we can uh, hope we can catch up in person soon.
0: Yeah, definitely. Thanks, mate. Sure. Cool.
1: Cheers, mate. Bye-bye.
0: I hope you found this interview as interesting and as inspiring as I did. I really had to stop myself from saying, wow, too many times during it. There are some really interesting videos about the Girls Empowerment Programme he was talking about in Nepal on their website, canalan.com, which is dot ncom as well as videos and pictures from many of the other projects they've helped facilitate. If anyone feels like donating to help their work, please visit indigochildrensfund.com or get in touch with Quinton himself via the Canalan website if any business wants to become a Canalan official partner. I've posted the links to each site in this episode description. Episodes 1 and 2 of this podcast are still available wherever you found this one. I'll be back in a month or so time with another interview with someone who I find interesting and inspiring. Until next time, take it easy.